Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Sit around the campfire, kiddies, and let me tell you a horror story. At some point in your career, you're very likely to be tasked with designing an API. Whether it's for internal use only, use by business partners, or available to the general public, even the smallest API design can be a daunting task especially once you start learning about how things can go wrong. If things are at a point where someone needs an API, it's probably pretty critical and needs a lot more planning up front than a lot of other development tasks. There is a lot you can get wrong and a lot you can get right. We intend to discuss some of these things in this episode. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Freaking Tide Pods, man. So... (laughs) You've been munching on them again. No, but okay. So allow me to rant just a moment because this cost me money. Um, you know, we, we started using Tide Pods a couple of months ago um, instead of just like liquid detergent, right? No big deal. But it turns out that they apparently changed the plastic formulation of the pod um, and they didn't test sufficiently before these things were out in production. Turns out they don't always dissolve well. In in the wash, right? Yeah. So when they don't dissolve well, what do you have? You have a chunk of plastic floating around. It goes in the dryer where you dry the water out of the clothes with heat, which means that you have plastic that melts to your clothes and ruins them. So I've thrown um, thrown a couple pairs of underwear, a couple pairs of socks, a couple shirts. My wife's thrown some shirts and some uh, expensive running socks and stuff away, like, and all because people munch on Tide Pods somehow. <laughs> I'm just going to leave this out there as Understand that I wrote this episode from a position of just having fairly recently figured out what was wrong. <laughs> oh, <with that>. man. <laughs> um, so how about you? Well, I am a week into grad school. And since we're learning with Java, I had to install NetBeans. I'm really not sure why we aren't using IntelliJ from JetBrains because they give it away free to students and professors. So why not use a better tool? Just my thought. And there isn't going to be a better one because of JetBrains. JetBrains, Like, yeah. those guys are, are real hard to whoop. Yeah, they're, they're pretty awesome. The first thing I did, though, was to install the Darkula plugin, since it's an IDE without a dark theme. Like, it's open source. How do you not have this native? What a monster. And, and so, you know, all that said, though, I know as .NET developers, we like to joke about Java and, and kind of, you know, how horrible it is. It's really not that bad. No, it isn't. Um, I'm actually going to check out one of the Java user groups next week and see what I can learn from them. So, you know, I may have another tool in my uh, toolbox because of this. So that's that's really cool. I wasn't expecting to learn Java going into a data science program, but, you know, have to do the remedial stuff. That's pretty good. I mean, I've, you know, we've, we've been working with some Java developers just this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we give them a hard time and they give us a hard time, right? Like, it's... It's, it's, a, it's friendly banter. It kind of reminds me of... High school, yeah. When you know you have the rival school that's just down the road, and you know you're friends with some of those people because you went to elementary school together, yeah. And you're friends with them, but you also like to to trash talk each other, kind of like you and I have been since we met, yeah. <laughs> so other than that, we're in the process of um, updating and creating standards and organizational best practices for developing, uh, both in the UI and API at work. It's really exciting because I'm actually getting to be part of the discussion and help write some of them. And since we're talking about best practices, I have an article that you might find interesting for IOTs. So this article is titled 10 Best Practices for Securing the Internet of Things in Your Organization. Security in the world of Internet of Things has become a big issue. It's even more of an issue at an organizational or enterprise level. Now, this article, while it's a little over a year old, does go into some really great detail on 10 best practices 
for IoT security. And these include things like understanding and mitigating risks of external devices and BYOD or bring your own device workplaces, as well as ways to secure API endpoints for devices. Uh, one of the interesting practical tips is to move from device level access to individual identity access, since devices are now allowing multiple users. There's a lot of really good stuff. I suggest you guys go out and check this article. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, especially if you're building IoT devices or code or allowing users to bring in external devices. It's definitely worth a read. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got an email from Leanna. It says, hi, love the developer content on your site. And then we've uh, redacted some personal details. Thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thanks, Leanna. Send us an email with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. Uh, we post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Instagram, Path, and Tumblr. You can check us out each week as we have Complete Developer Raw, a live show with Will and BJ, um, right before we record, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. Finally, you can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Designing a web API or application programming interface that lives on a web server can be fairly difficult. Not only do you have to be concerned with the fairly obvious security issues, but it also has to work well with clients that may be written in any number of other programming languages, running on who knows what platforms, possibly with slower intermittent connectivity. Um, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. You also have to learn to future-proof your API in such a way that you can safely upgrade it as you discover new things that it needs to do. In addition, you want to control how other parties use your API so they can't damage the system. You know, for themselves or for other users. You will also need to consider how you will handle things like errors, outages, upgrading the system, that kind of stuff. All in all, there's a lot of stuff you need to consider in order to successfully build a new API that other people will want to use and that you can actually support. In this episode, we won't be discussing practices for implementing a RESTful API. We should later. Yeah. Instead, we're going to talk about specific things you need to consider when building your API so that your users don't hate you. Some of them overlap with REST, others do not. And as Will suggested, we will be doing an episode on RESTful APIs at a later date. Now, while some of these things touch on support, DevOps, and even partner integration strategies, we're going to emphasize that you have to be concerned about them as a developer, especially when other people say it's not your problem. Yeah, because that's always the worst, right? Is they go, oh, it's not your problem, so you don't worry about it. And then the thing rolls out and you get blamed. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start off by talking about why do we need this? Yeah, because rolling out an API is easy, right? You just... You know, run the project template, you do a couple things, and you go, right? I know people that do that. Yeah, I do too. And I've cleaned up after them. Yeah. I can actually say that now. <laughs> yeah, because the theory is you stand up an endpoint, and your clients call it, and everybody's happy. You know, the lion and the lamb lie down together, and, you know, utopia is reached. We're done. We go home. Right. The problems come in when you have to maintain it, when somebody actually has to use it, and when you have to support it. So, basically, it's entire life cycle. It's also possible to break systems, including and especially your own, with a bad API. I've done it. Most people that have done API development have at some point. Many managers are not aware of all the risks of simply kicking out an API and calling it a day. This is the sort of thing a manager can push and then get promoted for. And then two years later, you get blamed when the thing blows up the system. Right, because you're in that position now and the manager's moved on. Right. Uh, but you're in charge of maintaining it? Yeah. And so, yeah, I... Well, and, and your name's on all the check-ins, right? Yeah. So, you, what you you know, if you don't want to get a contractor to come in and touch every file and then check in and then leave, <laughs> you're going to have to handle this, you know, from, from the get-go in a little bit better way. Because this is not a really good spot to be in, especially um, with large clients or partners in the mix, because they have more power than you do. Right. Even though they're not in the organization. Mm-hmm. So first, we're going to talk about versioning. Trying to retrofit versioning on an API is a pain. It's putting it lightly. Yeah, I've, I have done it a little bit. Um, going to be doing more of it, but thankfully, uh, retrofitting is going to be only on 
but thankfully the retrofitting is on apps that were built within the last few years, so yeah. it won't be that difficult. Yeah, at least it's not like the old school web services. Yeah, we've got some of those, yeah. but we're not trying to, to version those just yet. Now, bear in mind that if you require something new, return something new, or put things in a different shape, congratulations, you've incremented the version. Yeah, even if you don't think you have. No. Um, and this is the um, it's the one where it's like, basically, if you change the signature coming out of a function, or you change even things like what errors it throws, yeah. you've changed it. You know, it's one of those things, like, I can't tell you which rule it goes to. I can tell you that don't do that, because yeah. it hurts. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, smashing your arm with a hammer. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know what bone got broken, but I know I got hit with a hammer. Even small changes can break other people's apps. So, uh, you know, uh, sit around the campfire, kiddies, and let me tell you a horror story. Once upon a time when I was a wee lad, and by that I mean like last year, I was integrating with Mandrill. Okay. You know, which is a MailChimp property. You know, we use it to send emails, Mm -hmm. transactional mail. No big deal, right? And the thing, you send it a payload, and it sends an email, and then it calls back to a webhook on your side and says, okay, yo, dog, I sent the email. Here's the results. Easy peasy, right? We get it working. We push it out. Everything's fine. Somebody at Mandrill, at some point, decides that, hey, let's include um, this field here in this in this thing, you know, we were stripping the HTML tags out of it. Let's stop doing that because it's not accurate, right? They stop stripping the HTML tags out. So those go in, right? The only problem is, is .NET Web Forms protects against that. It checks the post values coming in and says, okay, this is a cross-site scripting yeah. thing or a um, content injection thing. Like, it's, just, it's like, this is bad. There's HTML here when there shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And so it blows up. So all of a sudden, one day, a whole bunch of clients just stopped getting updates in the field, in production, no warning. You know, the fix was real easy, right? Here's a chunk of code. Here's where you copy paste it. You're done. Mm-hmm. However, to copy paste it, you got to go out on like 30 or 40 clients' production systems, some of which you can get to through VPN access and remote desktop, some of which you have to call and get somebody on the phone yeah. to sit there and you tell them what to type. Mm-hmm. They won't even let you touch the system. And so it was just a big mess because somebody changed it. And yeah, versioning stuff while it's live is really hard to get right. Also, if you didn't plan ahead, different parts of the app can end up with widely different versions. Right. And so what we're talking about there is stuff like you you have an API endpoint that's V1. And, you know, all these clients are calling it. And there's another one sitting there by it that's V1 as well. But mm-hmm. that one you didn't think out as well. So you got to change it. You got to iterate. So it's interesting that you're talking about this because one of the things that I've been tasked with that, that is my next thing to do is to go through all of our enterprise services in all of our environments and figure out which version is in each one. And some of them don't have version numbers. Yeah. So I just have to create a chart and go, all right, the most recent is in dev. The next most is in test and UAT. And the third most is in production. Yeah, we had to actually fix our stuff where it wrote to a table so we could yeah. pull a report on it because of that same problem, right? Like you've got it, you know, and it might be across 10 different servers. And yeah. it's, and what gets really hairy is when, you know, you've got an app that's calling an API and it's got to make two different calls and it's calling version one of one of them and version four of another one. You have to have some kind of usage statistics. Yes. Because it's an API, like it's not just you using it. Even if you think so, like you will be surprised. Oh, yeah. And the surprise will not be pleasant if you shut somebody down. And I hate to say something heretical here, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a really good place for waterfall development, at least to the extent that you plan your interface ahead. You know, a big plan up front for how the interface is going to be. In other words, how people are going to talk to the API. Like the only way you can safely iterate on this is if you keep it completely hidden from everybody until you're done. And management isn't going to understand that you can't iterate on this in production like you can on a UI. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would almost shift to a waterfall process just to keep management from causing me headaches. And I know there's people out there screaming at hearing that. Yeah. But I'm just telling you, like, I've, I've tried to rapidly iterate on API after it's been out in production and it's in use. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that is not pleasant at all. Another thing this can do is it can make documentation and support into 
a really nasty piece of work. So it's important to get this right, uh, just so you don't drastically increase the cost to the company in um, support time. Right, because like if somebody calls and they've got a problem with a web form, mm-hmm. they can probably go to level one support, right? And you know those guys, eh, you know they might be thirty, forty bucks an hour at most, probably, and it's going to be a quick fix. When it's somebody that has a problem with an API, they're talking to a developer, so the costs go way up, way faster. That's so true. You, you can't play with this. So there's a few ways to handle this um, on the web. And most approaches boil down to having separate endpoints or directories or domains for different versions of the API. Um, my favorite, uh, this is what I seem to do on all of mine, is, you know, I'll, if it's under a site, I'll have, you know, I'll have it under slash API slash V1. And V1 is version one. When I go hmm. to V2, I make a, a completely separate fork, basically, for that. Now, it means I have duplicated code, but it means I never break V1 for a V2 change. Right. And so it's interesting because one of the services that I had to update for us moving to production because they no longer have V1 in production. Yeah. Um, And we had planned on updating to version two. After? Like after this, like it was going to be, it's a big change. And so I've had to do it really quickly in the last week. I I do like the fact that they did this where before that, um, all the way up to production beforehand, there was a... V1, which it didn't actually say V1. It was just there. It, it was just there. And then there was one that specifically said V2. And, yeah. uh, and so when I made the transition, it was real easy to just point most things to V2. Yeah. One other thing that'll help too, if you're on that kind of situation, is you make a REST client to talk to the API and it's got a root URL. Mm-hmm. So when you change the root, you know, it, it goes to the same things, but under the other root. I've got that. Yeah. And then if you have unit tests around it, and you can point it to which one you want. Right. To get to. And yeah. then you can see all the things that explode yes. before you give an estimate. And that is exactly what I did. Okay. Good. <laughs> we're, we are on the same page there. It's, yeah. It's I don't cool. know if I taught you that or if it's something. No, you, you didn't teach me that. That's something I picked up on my own. Yeah, because being I was like super defensive and not getting hit. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, so uh, uh, above all with this um, needs to be consistency between APIs. A good rule of thumb is don't surprise your other developers. Yeah. Now, you can do other options instead of alternative endpoints and directories and domains. Mm -hmm. Um, These can kind of make it a little bit harder to tell which version of the API is being used if you're not careful. I've seen people do stuff with, like, headers. Yeah. And, you know, doing things with cookies and figuring out. And, you know, that's not my jam. I want it to be real stupid simple, but... So, what I did... um when I updated, because we changed our data model in the database, and we had applications that we didn't want to have to go in and change all the applications at once. So I cre- I left the endpoint to receive the post, and I also made I left the get endpoint. Um, and then I put a service in that converted it to the new style. Yep. And converted it back. And so because of that, we were able to have it the same URL. It's just you pointed to a different endpoint for the newer stuff. Yeah. Uh, actually, the newer stuff is a little bit more descriptive, so it's a better named endpoint because it's more descriptive of what it's doing for the new stuff, and everybody is now building to the new stuff. As soon as we get the last of the things in production moved over, we're going to completely deprecate those old endpoints. Yeah, and that is a, another important thing that I forgot to mention in the versioning discussion is that... When you're done with that endpoint and it's not being used, get it off the server before somebody starts. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, I hate having to even say that. <laughs> so that leads us into our final issue we're going to talk about here, and that is how you deal with beta versions or deprecated sunsetted versions. Usually with beta versions, you advise users not to use them in production, but you still need to be careful. If the user is a client with a large account, you can get stuck with an interface you didn't want because you put it in the beta. Yeah. So be real careful about what you actually show them. Like what a beta actually should be is, yeah, this is a production release and there's going to be some small bug fixes. There's not going to be changes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you want a Google beta, not a Microsoft beta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really true. You also need to have a reasonable strategy for promoting a beta to a real live production system. Um, that includes informing users about when the transition will occur and when the old one will go away. 
you don't just cut one off and put the new one on. Yeah. Because then the users have to be sitting there to switch it over. I, I have not exactly had this problem. Like I said, the service that I wrote when we updated it, uh, I put in, or I left the endpoints the same and made those endpoints the uh, backward compatibility endpoints and created new endpoints for the new stuff. So what that did was we were able to just pop it out there and nobody was affected because all the endpoints were the exact same they'd been using. We didn't change those except what the services did. Right. But uh, also you need to have a strategy for informing callers before an old version is removed. And you need to do this quite a bit of time in advance. Yeah, they need to they, know. They, they got to be able to change it. And they may be in a situation where, um, let's say that your client, let's say that it's April and you go, hey, you know, April 5th, we're switching out this API. Now, if your clients are people that are selling ski equipment, you're probably okay. If they're doing tax preparation software, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Like you notice just the, the sudden, <laughs> the, the, the pause and the pucker there, right? Like, that's not a place yeah. you want to be. So don't do that. And if a big client is using it and they aren't moving it anytime soon, um, you may be stuck supporting it. That's life. You shouldn't have told them about it. So another thing you need to be concerned about is error handling. Um, your application is going to have errors at some point. It's going to surface errors. Um, error conditions and messages are part of the interface specification. And as such, that means they have to be designed with it. You don't tack these on just at random when stuff blows up later. It goes without saying also that your code has to be very defensive. If you're on the open internet, it's probably hitting your servers that you care about. Put a wall around that thing. Communicating errors clearly is key here. The error message should clearly express the problem in terms that allow the consumer to decide what to do. Note that the consumer program can still change the message they display, but you need to make it clear to the developer on the other end what's going wrong. So this is interesting because all our stuff is internal. Um, and so, like, the developer on the other end is on the same team as me. And we talk every day. So it's, it's a little bit different um, in my case than kind of probably what you were thinking here. Note that you may need to provide the error message in multiple languages. That's human or computer. Along with enough diagnostics to help them troubleshoot the issue. Because remember, this is a interface you're making for developers. They're making the interface for their clients. Right. And you don't know what that is, right? You could be writing an API right now that is legitimately used by an artificial intelligence system that isn't out there yet. Fair enough. That's legit a thing that can happen. So you don't know. Give the developers what they need and let them deal with it. Now we have some thoughts on how to mitigate these problems. The first one is... Use error numbers for known conditions. Yeah, and I know this is like so old school, but we've been doing this on ours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we return an error code and descriptions. And those are like known. They're in the database. Yeah. And the nice thing is if we ever have to internationalize it, we can do that very easily. You know, because we've got them all right there and it can be handled by somebody that's not a developer for the most part. So we're a little bit different in that the... The only callers to our APIs are going to be internal. Yeah. For at least the ones that I'm building now. Um, at some point in the future, we may have that. So what we do, we don't want to pass up detailed error messages. Yeah. And that's another thing um, that we probably should discuss is don't give them a stack trace. Like your internal system stack trace, uh-uh. Uh, for one thing, that's just wasted bandwidth. But the other thing is, is you got to remember that you are creating an API that essentially comprises an attack surface. Don't give somebody more data than they need. Don't tell them where the holes in your armor are. Exactly. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this. I was a big proponent of logging because I just didn't want to have to deal with trying to replicate the problem so yeah. that I could see what was going on in the code. Um, and then uh, one of your neighbors is a uh, penetration tester. Yeah. And we were at, I was over here for recording, and then we went out and talked with the... So there was a neighborhood party going on. Yeah, one and, of the random parties that just happens up there. Yeah, and so we got to talking to him, and he told us about that, and I was like, I really should, you know, clamp down on it. And uh, I brought it in and told the other API developers about it, and we have. Another thing you need to do, um, you don't just throw away error messages on your side. Like, pay attention to the quantity and who they're coming from. 
because if you are having an active hack attempt from a particular account, you'll see a lot of error messages. Yeah. That can also point you to developers that are having problems and you can reach out to them and kind of preempt things. If it's a big client, you may want to do that. Um, but that's valuable information. Don't throw that away. Also, you need to watch out for the usual nasty web shenanigans. Yeah, a.k.a. the OWASP Top 10, and that was one of our recent episodes. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with it, check out that episode. We go through the most recent um, version, which I think is 2017. Yes. Um, of the OWASP Top 10 Web Vulnerabilities. So next, we're going to talk about rate limiting and bad user behavior. Yeah, and these two things kind of blur into each other a little bit, so that's yeah. why they're one point. So given a big enough API, someone is going to misuse it, whether intentionally or not. Yeah, and the unintentionals are actually more damaging in yeah. many cases. Now, this can be anything from a hack attempt to someone trying to bulk load data into the system. If there is a cost in servicing an API request and users are paying a fixed amount for using the API, then you may have to rate limit. Yeah, and this doesn't sound like a developer conversation, except management doesn't think about this kind of stuff. This is your job. You've got to point that out. You should build this in from the beginning. Um, it can be really, really difficult to fix a running system to handle rate limiting. So like keeping the API signatures the same, and by the way, not surfacing any new error messages, and allowing rate limiting. That's, that's not happening. Yeah, that, that's, that's just insane. Some users will also try to abuse the system. You know, having a great API is really not enough. Um, with a large enough population of users, somebody is eventually going to attempt bad things using your service. Yeah, and this can be anything from you know hack attempts to trying to get other people's data to trying to use your system to attack other people's systems. I mean, there's just a myriad of things that can happen. In fact, it could even be a null reference exception on an outline point that just like went to blank. There was a null <laughs> pointer there, man. I don't know. <laughs> I thought I recovered okay. You did. You did. So just just for you guys' edification, um, the the line here will pull to me where you know it says this can I be wasn't anything. Drinking when I wrote this. You, no. This can be anything from, and then he's just stopped. There's nothing after that. <laughs> this can be anything from null pointer to... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good good job just going on with it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... And there's a few ways to handle this. The gist of it is, is that you need to limit requests to no more than a certain number within a given time period from a given account. Now, there's ways to do this. There's software that will help with this. Yeah. Um, you almost certainly need to set these limits... On an account-by-account account basis. Yeah, don't do across the board. Like, everybody can do 200 requests an hour, and then that's great. And then your boss goes, hey, we just signed Bank of America. <laughs> yeah. And you've got the you know, you've got the number 200 coded all over your code base. Don't do that. Mm -mm. that. That really hurts. Ask me how I know. It wasn't Bank of America, by the way. It was yeah. somebody else, but eh, it still hurt. Somebody with a starter account shouldn't get the same limits as an enterprise account. Ask these questions when you're designing it so that management understands how complex this is and get it right. Also, when someone asks to raise the rate limit, you need to find out why. In a lot of cases, you'll be better off keeping the rate limit in place and adding something like bulk processing functionality for them. Right. Like QuickBooks does this uh, with their API. You know, you can mess with stuff, you know, you can get data in, get data out. But if you're trying to load a bunch of stuff, there's a different set of things. And you can just basically hand them a file. Here's a CSV, go do the thing. And they realize that because otherwise people are making these onesie twosie calls and they're overloading the system. You know, be aware that this is an opportunity to learn, not to immediately start implementing something. Now, with that in mind, there are also things that are asynchronous and batch processes. This is where they call your system and you do some big chunk of work. They're not sitting there waiting for you to get done like they, they send you a thing and then they're going to check back or you're going to check back. But they're not sitting there waiting on the thing to come back across the socket saying we're done. They're going to want to check to see if the process is finished or it's gotten results. A lot of clients don't consider what happens when they and everyone else call your API too frequently, which can knock servers down real fast. Yeah. And in fact, I think we've done that to Blueberry. 
our uh, podcast host, you know, the, uh, the, the statistics panel, you know, they, they rate limited how quick you could update. Yeah. It's once an hour. Yeah. Cause people were clicking the, multiple the times an hour. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So that, I mean, that's a thing. And I remember when they were going through that, that change, um, I don't think they tested quite as... They didn't test at all, <laughs> as far as I could tell. There had to be some testing, but I don't think they tested quite as much as I would prefer, because we had some... There was a couple of months there where we were going through some issues with them. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, that's... Um, you know, there's a reason they did that. I, I will say this about Blueberry, though. They were really great about working with us. Yeah, they really were. I yeah. was I was impressed. Yeah. Um, now, clients may need something processed within a certain time frame under a service level agreement, and that's why they're using your API, right? Yeah. Like, you're loading a bunch of crap into QuickBooks right before tax time. You don't want it to get processed on, say, April 20th. That's bad. So, a service level agreement, or SLA, is an agreement between a provider of a service and the client. This is basically the contract of what is and is not provided to the client by your API. And yeah. many clients may try to kick off processes within the same time frame while off-peak periods can be slow. Yeah, and this can be stuff like, again, the tax example, right? Like everybody and their mother is putting stuff into QuickBooks mid-March onward. Mm-hmm. And so their API gets under strain. Like, you know, you have to deal with very spiky behavior a lot of times in APIs that you don't see in web you know, web properties typically, except on like Black Friday. Yeah. Now, next, you may also not want to run processes on an ad hoc basis in general because of rate limiting on services that you use. Yeah. So your API calls other people's API and they've implemented best practices. That means that you can't just go, oh, yeah, I got a thing. Let me just carpet bomb this thing. Right. Yeah. Like I may go, I've called 200 times in the last hour. I got to wait a minute. So you'll end up running batches or queuing up work. This can get really tricky if you find yourself under load and you have aggressive SLAs. Yeah, there's actually a trick to that, though. Yeah. And the trick is, is you reach in your wallet and you find those green pictures of Benjamin Franklin and you start throwing them. Because <laughs> that's basically what happens. Yeah. There's just a lot of options here, depending on what the problem is. First off, you should prefer webhook setups over allowing clients to pull for status updates. Yeah. And th- by the way, this is a general rule for distributed systems. You don't want polling, period. Yeah, this sets it up so you tell the client when something is done rather than them asking you. Yeah. And just imagine, you know, you can explain this to a boss pretty easily, right? Like, yeah. hey, have you filled out my, f- you know, have you approved my vacation request? Hey, have you approved my vacation request? Go, isn't that annoying versus you just come in with the paper? Then they'll get it. Now, webhooks are really nice for this. You may also need to look into automatically provisioning additional servers to run jobs as load increases so that you can meet an SLA. So, for instance, if you're a tax preparation service, you might need to double, triple, etc. your number of servers on or around April 15th, you know, if you're in the U.S. Otherwise, you get under load and things fall over. You know, that's something, this is a discussion you need to have with management before you start trying to roll an API, because this needs to be built in. Like, you need to be able to actually monitor the traffic levels and see that I got to add servers. And you don't want to be trying to figure this out when you're under load. Um, Just trust me on that. Now, if you automatically provision cloud servers for extra load, you have to be careful that you don't over-provision them and that you can quickly decommission them when you're done. In other words, you don't want to provision 100 new servers and then find out six months later that, oh, yeah, they're still up and they have no load on them. That's how you get the CFO really, really cranky. So don't do that. Now, the above approach generally means that you're going to have to think very carefully about how you deploy your software. This changes it. You can't do this on your own servers, probably, unless you've got a lot of infrastructure. You're going to have to use somebody else's. It also goes without saying that you need to think about how to scale your databases in response to higher load. Single database systems work. You can throw money at them and they'll scale up until they don't. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you hit a limit that's essentially imposed by physics. And then you have a problem and your system needs to be structured so that you don't hit that limit anytime while you're there. The next thing you're going to need is developer API playgrounds. When onboarding a new client into using your API... You probably don't want them using a production environment. You say that laughingly, but there are payment providers out there that do not give you test credentials. So you sign up for the payment provider and you have to run a payment through with a real credit card. When you're hooking your API to it, the developer has the boss man's credit card sitting on his desk for months, potentially. 
Users testing out the API need to be able to quickly get to the point where they can get something working. That means they don't need to go to the CEO of the company and go, hey, can I have a company credit card? Mm-hmm. That conversation is very slow. Yes. It's very awkward, too, if you've ever been there. These people also need to be controlled so that they don't damage production environments. You know, you've got a junior dev implementing a payment gateway, and they're, I don't know, polling. Mm-hmm. You don't want them hitting your production system while they're testing stuff out, because it turns out that most code doesn't work on the first try. Yeah. Also, they're going to need a reliable way to simulate known error conditions so that they can effectively test. So they're going to need to know what errors that you're going to throw. Right. And be able to handle them instead of rolling something to production and then reacting to it and having to push new code all the time. Now, the transition between the development sandbox and a production environment really needs to be very straightforward. Yeah. Your, Your development testing environment that you give them needs to be the exact same as your production environment. Right. Because and that's what they're building to. Yeah. And I know, also know of a um, service provider. It's not a payment provider. But they have an API that has certain methods on it in dev and certain other methods in production. Those two sets, when they intersect, do not look like the flag of Japan. <laughs> One of your favorite analogies. That like. And it's, it's like, well, what do you do? You go, well, if I'm in dev, call this. If I'm in production, call this. Well, that means that the production branch of that thing never got tested until you put it out there with money on the line. Now, we're going to talk about some stuff not to do. First off, don't put the production environment on a big server cluster and put the development playground on a laptop somewhere with 8 gigs of RAM and spotty internet. I'm assuming that is very specific because you've seen it that specific. Well, I'm not 100% sure that it was a laptop. It might have been an e-machine. <laughs> All right. So one thing that I've run into is our dev environment. Um, it's all because it's all behind the firewall. It's all on the same server. So we're not having to worry about talking between servers. Thankfully, we got them to move test so that test is testing across servers. Yeah, this will be um, this is something that can get you a lot, too. Like if you're calling a system and they call a system mm-hmm. and that call breaks. But in the dev environment, they're on the same box. And so there's no firewall things or things that normally break it. Yep. You can get hit with that. So I got hit with that last week. Yep. Uh, three weeks ago for us. Two two days working on it um, with our DevOps guy. And between the two of us, we got it wiped out. Junior Dev handled it. I just listened to the complaining. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> Next, don't allow the development system to get drastically behind the production system. Now, the developer sandbox should also assist the developers using your system and help them get into the pit of success. So changing from one to the other should require a change in endpoint, probably. And it should also absolutely require a change in access keys. Because what happens when somebody copies a production file down to dev on the client side and they use the production keys against the development system or vice versa? You don't want that. You want you want an authentication error that keeps bad data from getting in. So let that you know let that happen. You should also have known inputs to your development system that reliably simulate common errors and system conditions that developers are likely to experience. So you'll see stuff like you know in a payment system, if you charge two dollars and thirty five cents, that particular transaction will get flagged by something and it'll cause a chargeback, mm-hmm. so that you get that webhook and you get all that processing that goes on. Yeah. Um, you know. 255 might cause a not authorized, those kind of things. So you have like known values that the developers can test when they're testing stuff out. If you're providing webhooks to the client, your development API system should have some mechanism for triggering them. So it's not just the workflow does it, but you let the developers go in and they can click a button and send it. Mandrel does this real well ish. <laughs> um, they do have a little, they do have a little glitch that I've had to work around. Um, and there's a nasty comment about Mandrel in the source code. But other than that, um, <laughs> You know, you want a button that the developer can click and it, you know, it fires the webhook and sends them a payload, right? So that they can check and make sure that their webhook actually works. Mm-hmm. Now, webhooks bring up another point. Um, if the client's got to have one, you may also need to provide samples of what the payload looks like. You know, like mm-hmm. if it's JSON, um, that'll be sent into the webhook under different circumstances. And the reason is, is because a lot of times developers are not, uh, turns out, you know, people with critical systems aren't. On the open internet, and they don't really want stuff coming in. Yeah. Um, so they may have to, you know, spoof that JSON call mm-hmm. their own way. So give them the JSON so they can do that. That makes perfect sense. So next, we're going to talk about API approval. 
you probably shouldn't allow just anyone to set up an account and start using your API. Yeah, I mean, you really don't want to use an API that would have you as a client. (laughs) To paraphrase Groucho Marx there. This has a pretty obvious potential for abuse and makes it easier for abusers to just create a new account and continue abusing. It also could mean a stray post to Slashdot, Hacker News, or whatever can instantly overwhelm your system through hundreds of new accounts. I know we've worried about this when we've gotten posted onto Hacker News a few times. Yeah. Even if none of the individuals are abusive. So, like, we we worried about it, and thankfully our, our setup for, you know, the podcast website isn't that terribly bad, um, that it can handle the load, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel good about that. Yeah, because, you know, the thing is, is like, again, not not being hostile, right? Mm-hmm. A thousand puppies will still destroy your house. Yes, that's that's very true. You probably also want to know something about the people using your API, or at least your marketing department does. Um, now, none of this applies if you're someone like Google, because you can handle the auto DDoSing yourself and can easily get information about your clients, so <laughs> forth. You already have it. Yeah. <laughs> For the rest of us, though, caution is required. Now, in the early days of an API, people signing up should be vetted manually. And you know what? We still do this with some of our systems where I work, because if you're coming in saying you are a certain business, like we're requiring you to provide, you know, your FEIN or if it's like a personal business that your SSO. I'm very familiar with that system. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, you know, that's required. But the other thing is, you know, like when you're rolling out a new API, you really don't want a whole lot of people in there and you, the company should be strategic mm-hmm. about who they are letting in. Now, a restricted beta to a limited number of clients allows you to evolve the API based on feedback before everybody and their dog, really, and their dog. Hey, it might be an IoT device on a collar. You never know. Is sending HTTP requests your way. That'll happen next year. Just watch. Yeah. As an API matures, you can probably go to a more automated signup process. Um, now, this is how our uh, single sign-on works. Is It's more of an automated process, but for our, you know, legally responsible, you know, you're going to get the sanction or you're going to get the bill yeah. piece of it, it's still manual. And the other thing about automated signups for APIs is there should be a little bit of a delay or the bots will play. Right. right, like if they can sign up and they figure out some way to to you know post to that web form and I don't know you didn't put a captcha on there because you're dumb, they automatically sign up, they abuse it, and they get kicked off. But they can, you know, if they get kicked off after fifty posts, well, they'll just make fifty thousand accounts. But if there's a delay, that makes that harder. You should also consider a probationary period for new accounts with tighter limits on behavior. Yeah, again, this is just kind of an auto moderating sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And above all, you don't let the marketing and non-tech types entirely dictate the decision. They are not going to be there at three o'clock in the morning when the servers fall over. It, you know, it doesn't matter what they want. There's realities to living on the internet. Now, let's talk a little bit about multi-language support. And this is computer languages. Your potential clients probably aren't going to be using the same programming language as you. Uh, mixed environments are the norm. Very few have the luxury of a single environment, you know, whether it's the client, you know, whatever. Now, this can restrict what kinds of things you're able to do. For instance, non-dynamic languages can be painful to use if your API returns data that isn't shaped the same way. Right. And Facebook used to be real bad about this. It's like, okay, this field's a string, uh, except when it's an object with a bunch of fields, some of which are sometimes strings, but sometimes objects. Because, you know, they're thinking, it's JavaScript. And you're like, yeah, that, that's not that's not my jam. That breaks my things. And this was before the, the dynamic keyword in C Sharp, right? Like, you call it and you're just like, yeah, you know, I got to kind of probe at this thing and see if it if it blows up this way. And then I make the call over here and it blows up that way. And, I, you know, it, yeah, it was that, unpleasant. Yeah, that sounds like a pain to deal with. Especially when they changed it. Because um, Facebook's really bad about moving fast and breaking things. The above can be an issue with some languages, not all. They've kind of partially started to fix this in C Sharp because of these kind of problems. But other you know, older languages, like I've got a buddy that's doing JSON in VB Classic. Wow. That's like, I I that, don't envy him. Yeah. Um, I've seen the code. 
Probably, um, probably pretty pretty interesting code to deal with that. Yeah, because he's having he, he's treating it like strings. He's having to do yeah. his own parsing and all that stuff. So um, other people's platforms can be really weird to call into as well. For instance, many platforms will throw errors if you attempt to post HTML to an endpoint because of cross-site scripting concerns. We talked about that with Mandrel with my mm-hmm. story earlier. Now, multiple languages can also make it tricky to give everybody a decent library to talk to, right? Most people don't want to do raw HTTP, it turns out. Your library will stink if you have someone who isn't fluent in a particular language attempt to build an SDK in it. Yeah, like, I, for instance, I know a guy that can write Clipper code in any language. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. I know when I first started at my job, the lead UI developer who I was on the team I was on, uh, he would tell me, he's like, yeah, he's like, I can tell when you switch yeah. in the day from writing C Sharp to JavaScript. He's like, because you write JavaScript for probably about the first 30 minutes to an hour. Like it's C Sharp. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just is really odd, you know, when somebody is, you know, they're building in Python and they make a C Sharp library. You can tell. You yeah. can really tell when it's actually a Java one. It's, it's like an uncanny valley thing. Yeah, it really is. Um, however, your company probably can't afford enough developers to cover the 10 most common languages, much less the many less common ones. You really need more tooling. The default stuff in your API editor is probably okay, but isn't necessarily the best choice when having to support a lot of other languages. Yeah, so you should probably look at something like Swagger. Um, Now, what Swagger does is it gives you a lot of tooling to help you design your API and make it work across a lot of different platforms, see how it behaves, that kind of stuff. The tool can also help you standardize your API approach across your teams, um, which will help reduce the number of surprises that your clients experience in using your API. One thing I've seen that's really painful is when you have two teams at another company and they're both using the same language. If you're using the same language as them, you don't get any surprises. If you're using another language, you do get a surprise when you switch because their port to the other language is wrong because it's not their native, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So now that we've talked about multi-language support for computers, we're going to talk about multi-language support for humans. It turns out that most people on this planet don't use English as their primary language. That would be Chinese. English is actually the third most common language after Spanish. I was going to say, yeah. It also turns out that unless you spend a lot of effort attempting to disable it, people who don't speak your language will be attempting to call or use your application. Um, Should the number of users of a second language be high enough, your employer will probably want to be able to provide API interactions in more than one language. Yeah, and this can be really, really annoying if you've hard-coded a lot of strings or you're building them dynamically based on the rules of your own language. Um, For instance, let's say that you're working, I mean, even even languages that are very, very close, uh, Mm -hmm. English and Icelandic, for instance, there's a few things they switch. If you go to, say, English and Russian, there's a lot of things they switch, and Russians drop off a lot of stuff that we have in English. You also have a different alphabet with Russian. Yeah. And, you know, then you get to right to left languages and you get to, you know, like Germans have got compound words for all the things. And those words are about as long as your arm. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't fit in the text box that the English word does. Right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Uh, There's so many things. Yeah. There's so many things that go crazy when you do that because what what are you looking at? Um, you know, we had an episode on strings, right? Yeah. And that kind of touches a little bit of it, but it doesn't get all of it that goes wrong here. Yeah. Now, to fix this, you pretty much have to make sure that any client-facing strings in your API have the following characteristics. The first is they are not hard-coded in. Yep. And this is something that um, we're working on where I work to move away from that. Yeah, we're not. Um, and we need to. Yeah. But it, and it's on the roadmap. Also, you, you want there to be the ability to specify the language, time zone, and other things that change with internationalization at the client level, and you have to respect it. So here's the interesting thing. You talk about internationalization, pretty much like the regulatory things I write are all within the same state. But guess what? We have two time zones in the state. Yeah. And, and you've got Memphis, which pra- practically has its own language. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we also have a very large Hispanic population in the state. And so we have to think about that 
as well as other things. Yeah, and you have a lot of uh, Kurdish population just here in, in Nashville. That's very true. Yeah, I hadn't even thought and about that. I just I, I think of where I grew up, just outside of Nashville, there's a huge Hispanic population there. Yeah. And so we I'm I'm thinking, all right, we need to make it so that anybody can access this stuff. Well, I mean the thing is is like if you're putting API out there, presumably there's some financial gain from it. Mm-hmm. And these people's money's still green. So like figure it out, man. <laughs> yeah. Also, don't build up messages based upon the syntax of your language and don't rely on string replacement. Yeah. Again, going back to the syntax thing. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, if you, and just to give you an example of how to do this, type a sentence. I don't care what about, like, you know, just pick the first line of Romeo and Juliet, put it into Google Translate, translate it to Chinese, translate it to Russian, translate it to Spanish, and then translate it back to English. That's the kind of reading material that you're creating for your clients when you switch out based on yeah. tags. Like it really makes it hard. It's going to create a lot of mistakes and you're going to have a lot of people that don't speak your language calling the support line. Mm-hmm. Also error messages. The text there um, has to be fixed with details for particular instances separated. Right. So an example of this would be, you know, I couldn't get the data for client 71, you know, and 71 is hard coded in. That sounds good on paper in English, but what you actually should say is I can't get the data for this client. And that's a fixed string. And then the details are client ID, colon, whatever. Because if you do that, now you can do a string replacement and not get nailed. Huh. You know, I, I mean, I would do that anyways because it, it to me, it makes more logical sense to have it listed out like that because then I could I could grab that and use it. Right. Um, just thinking from a full stack developer standpoint, I'm like, I want it to be returned that way so I can use that information to then populate an error message on the UI. But... From the the standpoint of string replacement for this, I hadn't even thought about that. Like I already do that for that another reason, but that's that's just more more fodder for what I'm already doing. That's yeah. really cool. Um, the other thing is um, the error codes that we talked about earlier. That's another reason why you want that, right? The error code is a known value. Here's the problem. Yeah. The message is not. The message is here. Let me help the developer. Yes. Those are two different things. There's diagnostics and there's help. So that make makes, them separate. Yeah, I, I follow that completely. That's a that's really good. Once you have all this in place, the translation bit, outsource that. <laughs> okay? Like, uh, you know, because I, I, I used to do combative martial arts, as you did. And I worked at one company that talked to me about translating their app to Japanese. Mm-hmm. Okay? Do you know how bad of an idea that is? Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that where it is. Don't do that. That gets outsourced. The marketing department can be prevailed upon to go, look, this is going to make us look real dumb. Mm-hmm. So the final thing we're going to talk about under best practices is communication with clients. People that are relying on your API and probably paying you tend to expect your services to continue running so that their clients can pay them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hate to just like throw a, you know, <laughs> no stuff Sherlock thing in there, but that's kind of. Like, that's how this works, and people seem to forget this. This means that you can't just push updates and changes in the middle of when people expect things to be working, except in extreme circumstances. This also means that you have to give a lot of notice before you make changes uh, so that people can prepare for them, really. Yeah, and avoid problems. You cannot be like Microsoft is with Windows Update and assume that your needs are the most important and that your clients are idiots who need to be forced to take an update right away. I'm just going to go ahead and lay that out there because Beej and I have both experienced this a lot. So I have never really been much of an Apple fanboy. I mean, I've got the iPhone mainly because FaceTime with my sisters and my nieces and nephews. Yeah. Um, and it was the first smartphone I had, so it was just easy to stay with it. But I have moved over to a Mac at work. I'm running a Windows VM right now until we move to .NET Core. But, oh my goodness, yeah. I'm like, I love it. I am seriously considering the next personal laptop I get will be a Mac. Yeah. And I mean, just, and, and the updates are a big part of that, right? Yeah. Like the, just getting, never knowing whether a system that you're trying to use to make money is going to go down. Right. Because somebody out there said, oh, I'm just going to update it right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that the continual deployment and all that thing, that's the rage. But like, unless you're really, really good at it, you don't get to do it. And the, the other thing too is that the Mac OS is so much lighter. So there are several things that you have to get right. 
You should only do non-critical maintenance in a planned outage window that is either recurring on a predictable schedule communicated to the client in advance. Both those things have to be true, by the way, not mm-hmm. a hidden schedule that they don't know about. Or you do it as needed and then warn people well in advance, repeatedly. Right. Now, when critical events happen, you may have to take things down in a hurry. You need to admit that the system is under emergency maintenance, both on Twitter and whatever other communication mechanisms you have. And we say Twitter because that seems to be the place people go to. Yo, dog, your site's down. Yeah. On Twitter, um, which when our site has gone down, that's, that's mostly where how people, we find out about yeah. it, right? And, you know, so like you just have to admit it. Like it doesn't matter what the marketing people think because you're going to have people go in there and they're going to s- go to your Twitter to send you a message and they see, oh, hey, we know our system's down. They don't bug you and yeah. then you can fix it. And it's more honest. Well, what it does is it reassures the users that the problem is being looked at. For example, um, with our comments thing, I, like, uh, the, the person that said that tagged our podcast Twitter, but also tagged our, both our individual yeah. Twitters. And I saw it on my personal one. And I saw I, it a few days later. Yeah. I commented, yeah. um, when I finally saw it, cause I don't get on Twitter as much as I probably should, uh, for things like this. But, uh, when I finally saw it, I commented, Hey, we're working on it. Thanks for letting us know or something like that. And honestly, if it was me, if, if I were on the other side and this is why I did it, that's what I'd want to hear. I'd want someone just to say, Hey, thanks for letting us know. We're working on it. Yeah. And, and so, and if you're, that. if you're relying, you know, if you were relying on us to make money, which nobody is because. We're not getting a cut. Um, <laughs> that's why no one's relying on us to make money because we're not getting a cut. Yeah, darn right. Um, but you know, if you were relying on somebody like that to to make money, like you want to see that. So, mm-hmm. and, and I know that this is not a developer concern, but it it kind of is. Like this is stuff you have to kind of surface, mm-hmm. especially with an API, because they don't think about that. You also need to make sure that you regularly contact your users, and this is kind of a development role. Like yeah, your is, marketing person should not be writing all the emails to the people that are consuming your API. Like, this is a tech person to a tech person. Now, they probably should review it because I've seen some of what passes for spelling in tech. Like, I get that. So, what I do but, when talking to our, in the development process, but talking to the business owner uh, is I will go through our uh, BA and I will say, I will send her exactly what I want to say or the question I have and then let her word it however it needs to be worded. But I, I will send that to her and then she passes it on. When you're dealing with external clients, you want to go through your marketing department because marketing you, or sales or somebody else who can, who can catch the flack. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, you want a human shield here. Okay. Yeah. It's fine. But the big thing here is that those clients, you know, if it's not a critical communication, they still need to know about what's coming up in the API with useful examples. They need to know about impending downtime, maintenance, that kind of stuff, the stuff that you know, Mm -hmm. and then let the marketing people communicate that versus them hearing, oh, the system's going down on Saturday yeah, and not having the right, like they don't realize that, oh yeah, this is V1 of the API that nobody else is using anymore or almost nobody's using. Now, mind you- This is not a marketing responsibility. Even if they try to take it over, it is the developer responsibility to put that information together, give it to marketing, sales, whoever talks to the customers, and let them format it however they want. Yeah. But the the actual information should come from a tech source. Yeah, because otherwise your clients are going to think you're an idiot. Now, guys, there's a lot to consider when building an API. And while we frequently try to simplify the process down to where it feels the same as making a simple library for our own use, this approach really doesn't get us where we need to be. Instead, it's better to embrace the complexity and to realize that building an API is a bit bigger than a lot of typical development experiences and adjust according to that. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So this isn't a uh, development thing, but I'm digging a little bit into a little bit more of the digital marketing stuff for various reasons. And I figure at least some of our audience is probably doing the same. So if you are, you may want to check out FIMP. Now, FIMP is the Free Internet Marketing Project, and it's a set of free courses on how to think about picking out marketing niches and the like in tech. 
So they, you know, they talk about SEO, they talk about keyword research, all that kind of stuff. If you're looking into getting into the marketing game or just trying to understand how it all fits together, aka how the money comes into your account, if you're working for somebody that needs marketing, this stuff will help you out a lot. Um, it's really top-notch content, especially for free. Um, I think it's better than a lot of stuff I've paid for personally. And I actually uh, had a back-and-forth email exchange with the guy that developed it um, today. And I got to say, you know, it is it is really good stuff, and you should definitely check it out. So we'll have a link for that in the show notes. Um, you know, go sign up. Just check it out because it, it's, it's been really helpful. And that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.